Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. As has been our custom here for the last several Lents, we've chosen a picture to kind of go along with a theme for Lent. Lent, of course, is a period of preparation, um, some six weeks or so that precedes uh, today. Today is Easter Sunday. Um, And so this year we've uh, chosen a watercolor by William Blake. You can see it on the easel uh, to your right, and it depicts a scene from the book of Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, right? Um, The King James Version says you've heard uh, in the book of James chapter 5, you've heard of the patience of Job, but if you read the book of Job at all, you'll know that Job wasn't very patient. He was frustrated. He was exasperated. And that's why the English Standard Version, when it uh, translated uh, James chapter 5 and verse 11, I believe it is, says you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Um, Job wasn't actually very patient in the way you and I uh, define patience, but he was steadfast in the midst in the midst of his exasperation and frustration. He was frustrated because he didn't know what was going on in his life, why God was, from his perspective, treating him uh, so badly. And this uh, watercolor uh, by William Blake, who was also uh, best known for his writings, if you ever watch the, the, the first movie in the Hannibal Lecter trilogy, Um, The first movie in the Hannibal Lecter trilogy is called The Red Dragon. And The Red Dragon, if you watch that movie, is set in St. Charles, Missouri. And uh, the crazy man who bites people's noses off uh, carries around a book in a museum uh, of William Blake's drawings. And in fact, he, in in the museum, he eats uh, one of these prints of William uh, Blake. Uh, It's a picture of uh, the Red Dragon. That's why the movie is called that. So William Blake has has had a following. Uh, Some people who follow him, not so good. Um, But... William Blake did, for a client, he did a series of 22, first of all, watercolors, and then towards the end of his life, they were turned into engravings. And this particular watercolor shows the the all-too-familiar scene uh, from the book of Job, where you see Job and his wife and his family uh, set on the bottom of the watercolor, the earthly scene, And then above them, you have dancing across the middle of uh, the heavenly vision is the prosecuting attorney, Hasatan, Satan himself, who is saying to God, in fact, God suggests it to the prosecuting attorney, you know, where have you been? Uh, 
the prosecuting attorney, uh, attorney, attorney says, I've been going to and fro up and down on the earth. And then God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the prosecuting attorney says, well, yeah, I would consider him, but you've got a hedge built around him. And then the question comes, does a man serve you, God, for nothing? In other words, he was um, impugning Job's character, saying the only reason that Job served God was because of what he got from God. And uh, so Satan uh, places the wager. You let me at him, God, and I will... Uh, cause him so much grief that he will curse you to your face. And in round one, God says, okay, uh, go ahead, but don't touch his body. Um, that We come to the end of chapter one. And because Job is a man of integrity that loves uh, God and hates evil, he does not uh, sin. Uh, Satan comes back for another court hearing and says, you know, God, if you just let me touch his body, you know, put him in sickness, uh, maybe even nigh to the door of death, he will curse you. And God says, well, uh, go ahead, but don't take his, you don't have authorization to take his life. And then we come to the end of chapter two, after his wife has told Job in the midst of his, some think was acute leprosy, his wife tells him, just curse God and die, Job. And Job says something very interesting. He says, should we receive from God good things and not also bad things? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then we move into the third chapter. The, the book of Job is like a huge sandwich between two thin slices of bread. The first slice of bread of chapters 1 and 2. Uh, the bottom slice, the heel, if you want to put it that way. How many like the heel in a loaf of bread? Yeah, everybody in my family saves it for me because they love me so much. But the heel is not even a full chapter. Most people, when you, they say, oh, I love the book of Job, or I read the book of Job, they're saying that they read chapters 1 and 2, and they read the last few verses of chapter 42, which is like, yeah, Job had a tough time, but guess what? It, it turned out great. It turned out wonderfully. Job lived happily forever after, and the Bible commentators say they, they think when Job was tempted, he was about 70 years old, and he lived another 140 years, and God gave him back all his children, and and that's basically, fundamentally, what people know about the book of Job. But the great gift of the book of Job are the intervening chapters, chapters 3 through 41, which contain a series of conversations between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. A young comeuppance shows up towards the end of this ten, a series of ten conversations or dialogues called Elihu. Finally, God shows up, speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. We would like God to say, pull Job up and say, here, Job, pull up a chair. I want to explain to you what's been going on. I had a bet on you. I had a bet on you. Uh, Hasatan showed up one day with the rest of the sons of God, and he said, here's the deal. And because I knew your heart, Job, I allowed him to sorely try you. 
But God doesn't do that. He begins to speak to Job out of a whirlwind and basically gives him a tour of creation, which is enough to satisfy Job. He puts his hand on his mouth. He repents. He says, I didn't know what I was talking about. And then God restores his life to him. If you read, if you don't just eat the two pieces of bread, but if you actually eat the bulk of the book of Job, which is in these conversations, uh, you will find that Job presents his case. And this is one of the things uh, we'll, we'll, we'll borrow from Gregory Parsons. He says, the book of Job extensively employs legal terms. And one of the reasons it does this is because we took a look at it last week. Job himself was a quote-unquote lawyer of sorts. He was a judge, as it was the custom in that day. Um, if you had a, a beef, an issue with your neighbor, uh, you would seek out the wise counsel of the judges in the town who typically would gather around the town gate. And um, that was the beginning of our kind of legal system that we enjoy in Western culture. You could bring your issue, both the person, uh, the defendant, and and the accuser, and you could bring your issue before these wise men. They would hear both sides of the case, and they would propose a just and, and right settlement. Job, wherever the land of us is, and we don't know, I, won't, I can't say that again, wherever the land of us is, and we don't know where the land of us is, Myself, personally, I don't believe that Job is a figure of history. I believe that the book of Job is is a great story of antiquity whose beginnings we only know something about. The, the book of Job could be as old as 4,500 years old. It's the oldest, I believe, it's the oldest scripture that you'll read uh in, in the pages of the Bible. And so wherever us is, Job, the story goes, would sit there at the gate. And he knew the language of the courts. He knew forensic language. And that kind of language is used uh, throughout the book of Job. Listen to Parsons again. The book of Job extensively employs legal terms and metaphors in the process of its dialogue concerning the disputed innocence of Job before God. That the dialogue is saturated with judicial terminology is quite consistent with the prominent role Job had played previously in the legal affairs of his town. Perhaps, he says, the most significant single legal term used is the root content. Content. Now, if you look with me just quickly, you'll, you'll begin to see uh, and, and fundamentally, in this sermon this morning, we're gonna we're going to chain together three passages from the book of Job. One found in the ninth chapter of the book of Job. The next one found in the sixteenth chapter of the book of Job, and then uh, the last one from the nineteenth chapter of the book of Job. And each of these passages uh, contains this idea of the language of the courts. 
I said to you last week, if you could turn in your Bible in the ninth chapter of the book of Job, we'll, we'll look at that just quickly here in a minute. But I said to you last week that I read something that was very puzzling to me when I started my in-depth study on the book of Job, and that was a statement made by Robinson who said that the book of Job is to the Old Testament as the book of Romans is to the New Testament. And that was a quizzical statement for me because I never considered the book of Job to have that kind of prominence in the Old Testament. We know that the book of Romans, if any church knows, we know that the book of Romans stands as a great guardian at the gate of the gospel in the New Testament. What is the theme of the book of Romans? The theme of the book of Romans is that a man is not saved by what he does, right? A man is not saved by works, but a man is saved by faith. By faith in what Christ Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection. So how then, if we look at this equation, if that is the way that the book of Romans governs, let's say the interpretation of the New Testament, how in the same way does the book of Job govern our understanding of the Old Testament? And I believe it is the same theme. I believe what the book of Job teaches us that a man is not saved by his own righteousness, as good, as commendable as it may be, but a man is saved by placing his faith and trust in God. So if the, God bless you, if the book of Romans is to the New Testament as the book of Job is to the Old Testament, we would expect then that the same language of the courts, if we could use that phrase that we find in the book of Romans, would also be found in the book of Job. And guess what? It is true. Look look with me in the ninth chapter of the book of Job. Job is talking here, and he says, this is a classic. You should have this verse underlined if you really want to understand this in your Bible. Job chapter 2, chapter 9 and verse 2. This is Job speaking. Truly I know that it is so, but he's responding to Bildad. And then he asks a question. How can a man be in the right before God? That really is the question that is posed in the book of Romans also. How does a person become righteous? Uh, We've probably never in our lives met a man like Job. Job was, was the most perfect man that ever walked the face of the earth outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if Job, if you were to meet Job, you would be dazzled by his integrity and character. He was a man who hated evil, loved God, who walked before God in humility. He was a man who even, he was so tender and perceptive for the things of God that even he even sacrificed for his children on the chance that somehow in their heart they had cursed God. And here he is asking this question, how can a man be 
in the right before God. Job never asserts perfection in the sense of forensic perfection, in the sense that he's not a sinner, that he's just coasting along because, like most of us do, we say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Remember remember the two guys that went up to the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee, the other was a publican. And the Pharisee started out praying, saying, uh, I'm glad, God, that you didn't make me like this guy, the publican. Job wasn't like that. Job knew that he was a sinner, but he didn't understand the measure of God's wrath and anger turned against him. It wasn't proportional to anything that he had done in his life. And so now he is grasping, he's a man of passion, he's grasping, God who was my friend has somehow turned his back on me my family has been destroyed. We, we hear him say it in the 19th chapter of the book of Job. It's almost too blasphemous to read in a public worship assembly. Most of us, if we heard a Christian speaking like Job was, we would say, you shouldn't talk like that. But in the pages of the book of Job, we have Job who is passionately searching for a relationship with God as his father that has gone wrong. He says, how do I get back into right standing with God? And then he says in verse 3, here's the term, if one wished to contend with him, can't find God. Uh, one of the commentators says, in all of the Bible, this is a unique case because Job wants to drag God into court. He wants to meet God down by the city gate and get this issue settled. But in the ninth chapter of the book of Job, he's feeling that the weight of the evidence, either honestly or dishonestly, would be turned against him. He feels as though if he got God into court, that everybody would be on God's side, that no one would be on his side, that God would be both the judge and the prosecutor, that no evidence would be good enough to somehow put Job in right standing with God again. Look look at what he says in verse 3. If one wished to contend with him, speaking of God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Uh, Judge Judy Draper on several occasions has told me in, in the court setting or sometimes taking a deposition, she will say, don't talk too much. Right? You talk too much. I, I had to go to court and testify two or three weeks ago uh, for a friend who was suing a medical doctor. And I, I said that same thing to the lawyer who was coaching me before I went, uh, a few days before I went in and gave my testimony in court. And I said to him, now Judge Judy Draper has told me that I talk too much. So I'm just going to answer the question. He said, no, I want you to talk. He said, I want you to engage the jury. I want, when I ask you a question, I don't, look at me while I'm talking, but then turn your attention to the jury. I want you to talk, to, you can make the case. Well, we didn't make the case, they lost. But this is what Job is saying. Even if God would show up, there's a one chance in a thousand that it's going to go my way. So maybe we should just try to settle this thing out of court. 
But Job's legal mind won't allow him to do that. And you'll find in this chapter that he continues on and on. Look in verse 28 of chapter 9. He says, I become afraid of all my suffering for I know, I know you will not hold me innocent. I, the, the, the deck of cards that I've been dealt is stacked against me. Now normally, we, when, when we go through difficult times as believers, our friends, our Job's comforters gather around us and they say, they placate us with glittering generalities like, well, you've heard them before, haven't you? God knows all about this. Or they say, as we saw in the movie, The Tree of Life, the mother's talking to the daughter who just lost her son, and she says, you know, that's just the way God is. The Lord gives. She quotes from the book of Job here. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. And our responsibility is to what? What's, what's the third line? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Why do you think we're singing, bless the Lord, oh my soul? Oh, oh, there it is. Now I got it. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But in, it, in everything, the New Testament teaches us, in everything and also for everything, we are to give what? We are to give thanks. Thanks, God. Thanks, God, for tearing my family up. Thanks, God, for entering into a wager with uh, the prosecuting attorney, of which I had no idea that you did that. You, I, I was just a cheap bet. And right now people say, oh, you shouldn't talk about God like that. God doesn't do that, does he? God's a good God. God's a good God. All the time, God's a good God. That's what we say. Don't talk about it. If you talk about it, that empowers it. You know what? That's another religion. That's not Christianity. That's Stoicism. Stoicism says, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Smile a while and give your face a rest. (laughs) Job says, I've heard everything that you've told me, but my heart is breaking. My life has been turned inside out. And you're... Glittering generalities and your stoicisms are not going to get me through this. I want to get God in court. I want to, I want him to explain what's going on in my life. And he's doubtful that he'll get a hearing. Parson says that first Job was somewhat dubious that he could raise litigation with God since he views God as a sovereign, an unjust judge has, who has abused his authority. I was talking to Andrew the other day about what we were doing in Lent on uh, the book of Job. And he says, oh, oh isn't that where, where, you know, God took everything away from him and then God restored it? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the, you know, the, the core story of the book of Job. And then Andrew, like, like there was a perfect pause there. And then he looks at me and says, couldn't we really blame that on God? And I thought, well, yeah, I can see where you're going there. And then I said to Andrew, I said, that's like going into court 
as a defendant, and your defense is when you go into court, all right, I don't know what, what, what you did wrong. Okay, you're, you're doing, you did 90 miles an hour in a 45. It's only double the speed limit. It's not too bad. And you're going to go into court and you, you, you're saying to yourself, this is not really my fault. Um, my defense is, it's your fault, judge. You made me go 90 miles an hour. Now, I don't think that's going to work out for you. Any defendant, first of all, who has himself for a lawyer has a fool for a client, right? So if you go into court and you say, that's good, here, we're going to go into the court of human affairs. God Almighty is the judge. And we're going to, this is what Huxley said. Huxley said, I'll just Huxley said, when, if I get before the judgment seat of Christ, then there is a God. And he asked me to give an account for what I've done in my life, why I didn't serve him. I'm going to tell him you didn't give me enough evidence. How many know that's probably not a good plan of defense? This is why you see, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we get to the end of the book of Job and God gives Job a whirlwind tour of creation, all you have to do is look at creation and realize, yeah, there's somebody in control. This world's stage is not of my making. God has called me as an actor to act out my life, hopefully, with integrity and character in response to the fact that God exists, but it's not my stage, and it's not your court. But Job begins to think this way. He begins to think, well, this this thing is, is fixed. Listen to what Parson says. But Job insists that God make his charge as a legal opponent rather than his verdict as an unjust judge. Look in chapter 10 and verse 2. He says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know. Here comes that legal term again. Let me know why you contend against me. Now, this is going somewhere, and we're about to get there, so just stay with me. Job's legal plight before God, who is simultaneously his legal adversary and his judge, accentuates the urgency and yet the hopelessness of Job's cry for a neutral party to hear his case. I, we we know, know that if we go into court and the prosecuting attorney and the judge are the same person, that was the problem with Ferguson, are the same person, we know we're in trouble. If the same entity passing out the ticket is the same entity that is collecting the money. How many know that is a recipe for good fiscal government? Yes, you can pay your bills, but it abuses the people, and this is what Job begins to feel. I could, If I could get God into court, it's not going to do me any good because I got a one in a thousand chance of proving that I'm innocent. You've heard of binding arbitration before. Sometimes people who enter into a covenant or a contract together will have a clause in there where there's a binding arbitration. That means, I guess, I'm not a lawyer. If you get 
if you have a disagreement, that you can call in a third party, right, who is supposedly uh, objective, uh, and that third party will hear both sides and make a recommendation, and binding arbitration means that at some point what the arbiter or the arbitrator says will be binding on both parties. It may not be everything you wanted, it may not be everything that they wanted, but that's what you agreed to going into the contract. Look at what Job says in the 16th chapter of Job. Job now is on a search for this kind of arbitrator or this third party, this person who is not skewed towards God's opinion, neither is he skewed towards Job's grief, but who can kind of stand in between the two, put his hand on both, uh, both parties and say, let's come together, let's come to an agreement. So the theme, Parson says, of a mediator or arbitrator is continued in 16, 18 through 21. I love this, and I, I, I'm going to read it. It's on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible. This is again from, I believe, the NIV. This is Job lifting up his voice. He says, O earth, do not cover my blood. Do you know that the Arabs teach that dew never settles on the earth where blood has been spilled? He says, O earth, do not cover my blood. We think of, right, the righteous blood of Abel crying out of the ground, protesting his demise. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, listen to him, even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, as the judge, I'm looking for someone to represent me. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. So similar to Job's plea for an impartial go-between in 933, and his confidence of a heavenly witness or intercessor, which we've just read in chapter 16, is his confident assertion that his Redeemer was alive. Did you hear that this morning? In the midst of Job's pain and agony, what does Job say? I know that my Redeemer lives. I, this is why, if you read the book of Job, it, it's wonderful. The book of Job is wonderful for posing the perennial questions about why bad things happen to good people. It poses the question over and over again. It turns it around uh, like the many facets of a diamond, and you go back and forth and back and forth. But in the book of Job, actually, the book of Job does you no good without Jesus. And that's what we'll spend the rest of the Easter season on. Jesus answers Job's questions. Job says, I have an inkling. Here it is. Here, here's a book. 4,500-year-old story, the perennial question, how does a man get right with God? Job says, I need somebody to be an impartial 
advocate for me, someone who could enter into binding arbitration, someone who could make a a redemptive case contending with God Almighty. That's why the book of Job is as to the Old Testament as the book of Romans is to the New Testament. Because that advocate, that arbitrator, that redeemer becomes Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have, you and I, brothers and sisters, this morning on this Easter Sunday, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So All of this glib talk about, well, you have to accept Jesus into your heart, and do you know Jesus as your Savior, blah, 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 yada, yada. It becomes so much drivel in the popular church in America. We have and ad- we have legal representation before God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because only his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary becomes the perfect propitiation or covering for the sins of the whole world. How does a man get right with God? Job, the answer is a man gets right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by placing his faith and trust in that sacrifice. I'll read the words to you again, Job 19, 23 through 27. He says, oh, that my words were written. He says, I have a feeling that I'm not going to live long enough to make my case. So I would like to live, leave a, a last will, a written record. I'm, I'm still protesting my innocence. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. I leave you again, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Someone says, that I may not sin. That's all I do. That's my life. I'm a sinner. What are you talking about, John, that we may not sin? I'm not a good man of integrity like Job. It's, It's... Unfortunate, so much of the church is involved in the first phrase. Little children, I write these things unto you that you might not sin. And they never get to the next statement, which is but. Say that with me, but. How many know there's a big but in your life? That's a big but. It's called a big but of sin. You know, when when somebody when someone asserts... The, you know, well, I don't think I'm that bad. Liar. Somebody put that on Facebook the other day. They said, wouldn't it be a good thing, liar, liar, pants on fire, if their pants really caught on fire? We'd all be like, yes, finally justice in the world. Well, guess what? Everybody pants would be on fire. Everybody. Nobody would be wearing pants. We'd all be going, 
It's just, it's, we don't want amazing grace. We want manageable grace. We want grace that is rational, understandable, that we can explain. And, and that way, because you know what? If you, if you really begin propounding the idea of amazing grace, then guess what? You're going to have to walk that out with the other people in your life. Well, I don't think that's right. I don't think what they did to me. You know what? I'm not forgiving them. That's just cheap grace. No, 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 no. They're, they're going to have to work harder at it than that. Do you hear what you're saying? I read the words of John. I write these things unto you, my little children, that you might not sin. Yeah, yeah, very, yes, that's a commendable thing. We should not sin. But how many know that the ought in the Bible is the hardest thing to fulfill? That's what St. Augustine said. We can do what we want, but we can't do what we ought. We can do what we want, but we can't do what we should. How many know that's the truth? You know what? When I'm, when I'm eating two donuts on Sunday morning and there's a third one, there's a third lemon or coconut donut there. How many know it's hard to, to do what I ought to do? What, what should I do? I should say, no thanks. No, not today. But what do we say? We say like, I really like to eat that donut, but you know, I shouldn't, so I probably won't. Oh, here, give it to me quick. You know what? Don't eat the donuts because the donuts that are left over on Sunday, I'm eating them on Monday. Maybe I should say, please eat the donuts. It's the art that gets us. Yeah, we can do what we want. So people protest all the time. Well, you don't believe in free will. Sure, do what you want. See how far that gets you. Just wear yourself out. Pursue whatever it is that your highest desire in your life. And after that disappointment settles in on you, then you turn to your advocate. Then you turn to the arbitrator. Then you turn to your redeemer and say, I don't have any power in and of myself to do what I should do. I've, I've, I've wasted my life doing what I wanted to do. And guess what? I'm not even... I'm not any happier today than I was when I began to assert the freedom of my own will. Oh, I've stopped preaching and gone to Midland now. Here's what the Bible says. Here's the big but. You know that a huge door can turn on very small hinges. You go in a bank vault and you you see that huge door? You know, that can weigh tons. And there, there's a set of hinges that are engineered to handle that weight. And here, here it is. Here is the, the butt hinge. Here it is. But if anyone does sin, he's got to be chuckling when he writes this. But if anyone does sin, as though we don't all sin. But if anyone does sin. <laughs> You've heard of sin before, haven't you? But if anyone does sin, we have I have proper legal representation in the courts. I have an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. How is a man made right with God? He has proper representation in court, and he places his faith and trust in 
that finished work. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.